I just sat uh, at home in between classes and just it was the closest I had come to an actual suicide attempt you know determined to do it and I called my wife at that time and just said you really need to come home because this this is getting ugly welcome to the depression files where we talk about everything related to mental health from depression and other mental illnesses to medication to suicide awareness and prevention to our current mental health system and of course to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. All right, I want to welcome to the show, Rainy Mullen. Rainy, hey, I really appreciate you joining me on The Depression Files tonight. Thank you, Al. Thank you. So um, I understand you are an editor, a writer, a poet... I am indeed, yes. As well as a mental health advocate. Indeed, okay. yes. Excellent. And it sounds like you have been dealing, as far as mental illness um, plays a part in your life, not only with depression, also with anxiety, and you've dealt with some cutting and some codependence pieces as well, right? It's true. Yeah, yeah. all of the above. <laughs> yeah, and can you, uh, when when would you say your, your first... Uh, pieces of mental illness started manifesting. How, how long ago? How old were you? Uh, I would say it was about sixth grade because uh, that's when the bullying had started to kick in. And there were lots of incidents where I'd be bullied in the classroom and I'd be the one kind of yelping uh, in pain and I'd be the one getting in trouble. And uh, actually the first time I cut was in sixth grade. Uh, it was silly little, you know, kid had put a tack on my chair and then I got in trouble and got sent to the corner of the room and just spent the next half hour taking that tack to my arm for a while. And since then it's been kind of something that I just thought was part of existence, uh, kind of the negativity and the, the anxiety and the, the kind of cutting, and it wasn't actually until I got into grad school that uh, uh, I went to the doctor because of issues with memory and focus. And that just kind of led down the road to uh, uh, finally seeing a therapist and a psychiatrist. Wow. So you and you would say from sixth grade on until grad school, when you finally got support, you were living with the cutting depression, anxiety and all of those pieces. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting to me. So I haven't, um, you know, you're the first person on the show, at least that's spoken about cutting. And so that's a new piece for me. And it's, it's a bummer for me. It strikes me hard to hear about it as a sixth grader, you know, cause I am an administrator as many people know in St. Paul public schools and, you know, bullying is definitely, um, hot on a lot of people's radars and, it's really challenging as an administrator to squash some of the bullying because I think a lot of kids are really pretty savvy about yeah. doing it when people aren't around or, or just their friends and trying to hide it from people. And, and the people being bullied aren't always so comfortable and confident in coming forward. Um, so first, my heart goes out to you to have to deal with that. Thank you. Um, and it's it's interesting to me that like you can nail down so easily and quickly the first time you cut. Yeah. And it's weird because, uh, 
I didn't even come out as a cutter until the last year or so. And uh, because as far as most people know, it's actually at least stereotyped as a teenage girl uh, um, situation. And yeah, it was much more, it's kind of, at least for me, about kind of bringing control back to me uh, where I feel everything is out of control. So it kind of works as, as kind of a focal point for me and kind of keeps me focused and actually kind of, uh, you mentioned the anxiety, it kind of deadens some of the anxiety a little, or at least kind of gives me something to focus on by kind of uh, bringing on the pain a little bit. Yeah. Um, did it, what were you feeling as you were cutting? I mean, were you kind of surprised? Like, well, I'm, I'm sitting here with a tack and actually cutting myself. Um, or was it an intentional thing? Like I need to do this to release something. Uh, I think a lot of the earlier times were mostly about just kind of hating myself and feeling uh, like a lot of, cause it was pretty widespread throughout the school. It wasn't just a bully. It was, had kind of manifested into most of the people who interacted with me. And a lot of it was just me kind of agreeing with my bullies at that point, you know, thinking, oh, I need, I need, I deserve this pain. I need this pain. Uh, so I think early on it was, it was much more about deserving it. Uh, and then kind of towards high school when the anger, the depression kind of came out as anger, uh, a lot of it was much more of bringing on control because that's when my parents had kind of separated and things had gone uh, kind of weird uh, in that, uh, like my father had attempted suicide and a whole bunch of other things had kind of fallen apart all at once. So it was much more about bringing control back to me at that point. Wow, you had a lot going on at, a, at what sounds like a pretty young age. Did, were you able to share any of the bullying pieces with this with school, and did you get any support? and And did people anybody realize at the time that you were cutting? Uh, no, actually, I did a really good job at hiding it. I actually don't have scars. Most folks who cut end up cutting fairly deep, uh, but due to what I assume is my codependency issues, uh, that every time I cut, I made it a point to make sure that those cuts could be explained through other means. So I was never able to cut as deep as I desired to and, or where I wanted to or how I wanted to. Um, so, and I forgot where we were going with that. Well, so in addition to that, so you were able to hide the cutting was the, I mean, it sounds like the bullying was pretty rampant, and I'm just wondering if, if anybody realized that if you were able to go and, and seek out support. Yeah, we. I had gone to, well, the first school I was at, uh, I went to the administration, and uh, it had gotten so bad in high school where uh, one of the main bullies had actually dragged me out into the street and started pounding on me. Uh, and when I went to the principal's office, they actually told me that since it happened off of school property, they couldn't do anything about it. Uh, and then shortly after that, I actually left that school because of the bullying and went to a new school. And uh, things kicked up there as well and went to that administration after a couple of guys had chased my brother and I down in a car and he had called, I don't even know how he got our phone number, but he called our house and threatened us. 
and went to the administration with the with the um, with the message, and they actually told me that you know everybody is going to die because the the threat was you're going to die, and therefore he couldn't do anything because it wasn't an actual threat. So I had gone several times to administration, and I think that's kind of how the cutting kind of ramped up because it kind of felt much more like a Twilight Zone sort of thing where no matter what I did or even if I did it the right way or the wrong way, uh, no help was ever there. Ah, that sounds awful. I'm really sorry you went through that. Um, And it sounds ridiculous, you know, like somebody drags you off school grounds and pummels you and therefore you are off school ground so it's okay and what a great message that sends for the other bullies <laughs> just right. brag just drag your uh victim across the street you'll be good there yeah wow yeah. wow um so that the cutting uh went on throughout high school and then you you talked also about codependence can you tell us more about your codependence yeah so uh i'm the only one that uh, is actually diagnosed with anything in my family. Uh, but we're fairly certain my mother suffers with some narcissism. Uh, and therefore, uh, I have this kind of codependency situation where basically it means I, I exist to kind of, uh, help others or kind of, Uh, My I don't actually know what my emotions or my thoughts are because I I kind of gauge what I feel and what my opinion is based on everybody else around me. So I spent a lot of time just kind of trying to stay away from people because it's rather exhausting to kind of take on everybody else's emotions. And, you know, when I finally met my wife back in 2001, uh, we you know, when she would ask simple questions like, hey, what do you want for dinner? I can't I couldn't answer that until very recently because I, I, I just froze up because I would be more concerned about, oh, well, if I say, you know, this restaurant, then she'll hate me forever. And, you know, that'll be the end of it for us. Uh, so, yeah, that that is still an issue. But I've certainly worked through most of that because uh, mostly through the therapy, but also because I've cut ties with most of the folks in my family. Okay. Who are, yeah. Was that, I mean, is that an exaggeration or literally like if you, you were concerned to the point of choosing a restaurant that your wife didn't like, that could be the end of the relationship. For quite a number of years of our relationship, it very much was that it was, uh, you know, if I chose the wrong restaurant, then she'd, you know, hate me that she'd be angry at me for days and days. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty, that seems pretty extreme. Yeah, for sure. Um, and (laughs) we would, I mean, you wouldn't really be able to, I mean, we make so many decisions just in a single day in our daily lives that, I mean, I don't think people even realize how many decisions we're making constantly to do something or not do something to react or not react, um, and different choices that would really be complicated, I think, to not be comfortable sharing, um, believing that something so detrimental could happen. Exactly. And I think that's kind of how my anxiety manifests. Uh, a lot of, uh, 
just kind of ruminating on either arguments or conversations that had already happened and worried that, you know, maybe this one word or the tone that I used on this one word would cause them to not want to talk to me again. A lot of times if I text text or email somebody and they don't respond immediately, uh, that sort, same sort of stuff kicks in of, oh, I said the wrong thing. Uh, and uh, before I was on my current medication, I would spend probably half of the night not sleeping and just kind of wondering and going over conversations that were going to happen uh, to try to make sure that I had stayed in that kind of zone of not stepping on anybody's toes. Yeah. Was... Wow. I can see the connection that, <laughs> that you've made for us pretty clearly about the codependency, then ramping up the anxiety. I yeah. Mean, those two would clearly go hand in hand if you're so concerned about what you say. Did you say the wrong thing? And like you said, you're up a lot of the night just ruminating and thinking about that and worrying about that. Yeah. Um, what, uh, how did your depression manifest? I know you mentioned anger in high school. Um, what other kind of symptoms do you have regarding depression? Uh, let's see. So in high school is kind of where I can kind of see it manifesting at the beginning. A lot of it being anger, a lot of it being uh, just not wanting to be around people, uh, self-hating myself, um, and you know, ramping up the cutting again in high school. Um, I tend to get rather snarky with folks, even my wife. Uh, and so she knows when I'm having a bad day cause I'll come home and I'll just, it won't be a high, it'll be some sort of random snarky comment. Um, and then a lot more recently now that I've been kind of more cognizant of my symptoms, uh, now that I'm a little bit better or at least manageable, my bad days are just like wearing um, uh, a lead suit where I just can't get out of bed. And if I do, I get as far as the couch and I just sit there and kind of veg out. Uh, whereas normally I'm a, a pretty active person. Uh, I got a lot going on. and But there will be days where I will just sit and basically stare at the wall on the bad days. For sure. And so those bad days kind of come and go, or is it typically a wave of them, like a couple of weeks of being down before you feel better? More recently, they've been a lot more uh, separated. Uh, and usually when they do happen, they're one or two days at a go. Uh, I actually have a, a pretty strict regimen for myself in terms of, of jogging, even though I hate jogging, just for the endorphins. Uh, I can tell I haven't been jogging for two days on the third day. I'm already basically stuck in bed. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're few and far between. And when they do, at least now, uh, they're usually just a couple of days, but starting in high school, probably until I was almost 30, it was basically an everyday thing. And to kind of get out and do anything was a pretty big chore. Yeah. So you, I did notice when you said, uh, I liked your description about walking around in a lead suit. Like I've heard different people explain it different ways, kind of like mm. walking through quicksand and stuff. Um, but I like that, um, just with a lead suit on, everything is kind of slow. Right. And it, yeah. it's interesting how, how physical it, it actually becomes the depression. But I did notice you, when you described it, you said now that you're doing better on your bad yeah. days, that's how you feel. 
right? Yeah. So on your bad days when you were not able to manage, just how bad did those days look? Man, those days, I'm, God, I just got goosebumps from thinking. Uh, a, a lot of it would be self-medicating with alcohol. Uh, my brother and I both have some pretty serious issues with that. Uh, and so on the bad days before, it was I wouldn't even crawl out of bed. Uh, I'd skip school. I'd call into work if I even called. A lot, you know, I've lost jobs early on just because, you know, the anxiety of having to call and then thinking negatively about me if I say, well, I can't come in. Uh, so just not calling at all. And, you know, towards the end of the afternoon, yeah, starting to pick up the, the, the drinking just to kind of mute it enough to fall asleep. Yeah. Right. Sounds rough. And then you talked about even losing some jobs from it then. Yeah, uh, early on, but, uh, you know, when I was fresh out of high school, so it was basically the, the McDonald's jobs, the fast food jobs. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you talked about um, two pieces of family I'm curious about. You talked about a divorce, and you also talked about your dad having uh, an attempted suicide. Yeah, uh, somewhere, and because my timeline is a little off, and I, uh, and I think that that's partially due to a lot of the, the mental health issues, but somewhere in early high school, uh, my parents separated, and it was an ugly one, uh, and uh, there was a time where he kind of, my father disappeared for about a week, and my mom pulled me out of school and had me go through his apartment to see if uh, I could tell whether or not he had skipped town or if something else had happened. And I honestly thought I was basically going to walk through his bedroom and find him hanging in the, in the closet. Cause I knew, you know, as a 15 year old that he was a hurting unit. And, uh, yeah. So about a week after that day, uh, my mother or my mother's boss saw my father just wandering the streets and my grandmother picked my brother and I up. We were probably yeah, 15, maybe 16, uh, and drove us to him. And we, by then we were about two miles away from where we lived. So my grandmother just dropped us off and we walked with my dad. And by the time we got to our place, he had told us, yeah, I tried to kill myself. I had bought a you know, the place where he was staying when he was first separated from my mother uh, was this Roach Motel. And he went back to that same motel and just purchased like two weeks worth of, of nights and swallowed a bunch of sleeping pills and downed a bunch of rum and had spent probably three or four days basically unconscious and nobody knew. And he was walking the streets hoping to try to kind of come up with a reason or a story to tell us by the time he had walked all the way home. Right. Yeah. That's a lot to take in as a 15 year old (laughs) to, uh, you know, show up at his apartment and have your mom have you try to figure out what, what's going on with your dad. Is he in town? Did he skip town? And then to have him just share with you like that about his attempted suicide. Did, um, did, did he offer you 
or, or were you able to get any kind of support at that point, you know, hearing that your dad just tried to take his life? It it was pretty weird. So after that happened, uh, he actually moved back into the house for a couple of months and lived on the couch. And we never really talked about it. Uh, I've actually brought it up to my grandmother uh, who lived right across the street and, you know, was the one that drove us to to see my dad that day. And she actually doesn't remember that incident. Uh, my brother is two years younger than me. And he is basically, he was so hurt when, so after my father attempted, after a couple of months, he actually moved away to Colorado. We were in Connecticut at the time and then just fell off the face of the earth for about uh, three years. And my brother and I were both pretty struck by that and the the suicide attempt and some of the weird stuff that happened with my mother after that, that uh, he actually doesn't really remember my father before, okay. um, before he disappeared. So it's been this weird sort of trying to piece together what actually happened without trying to without really having a whole lot to go with since most of the folks have either forgotten or don't want to talk about it. Right. Yeah. And I know you um, talked about doing therapy now. Um, yeah. And that was after many years of dealing with various oh, mental yeah. illnesses. So what finally brought you to a therapist? It was it was weird, and it was probably the only way I was going to see a therapist. So I was in the middle of grad school, and I was having severe issues with memory of simply, you know, walking out of the office and forgetting why I left the office. Uh, that I I went to the doctor, and he said, "Well, let me get you in touch with a psychiatrist. Maybe there's something in terms of attention deficit." And after about a couple of um, sessions with the psychiatrist. Uh, he said he wanted to try a few medications, but in order to do that, I would actually have to see a therapist. Uh, and pretty much immediately after I started seeing the therapist, just so that I could get the attention, um, basically Ritalin, uh, then things, it just opened the floodgate. Uh, it was this weird sort of uh, the therapist within a few sessions had already kind of given me this validation of, of, cause there was a lot of essentially emotional incest, uh, in the home, uh, mostly with my mother that make made and still kind of makes me very uncomfortable either talking about sex or even expressing that I'm a sexual person. And to have a lot of that uncomfortableness, with uh, some of the things that had taken place, uh, to have that validated uh, was pretty, pretty intense. Uh, so it kind of happened by accident, and then you know I went through four different medications to, uh, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners and maybe even you know, a lot of the medications it's kind of hit or miss just to see what works with for different people, and you know some of those medications just ripped through me. There was one where I think it was the second to last one. And it was just, I just sat, uh, at home in between classes and just 
it was the closest I had come to an actual suicide attempt. And it was weird because any other time that I had suicidal ideation, it was much, it was anxiety driven. It was, I, I hate my life. I hate everything. And I just need the pain to stop. Whereas on that medication, it had turned me into this, nope, and very calm and cool and collected and, you know, determined to do it. And I called my wife at that time and just said, you really need to come home because this this is getting ugly. And she did. And we ended up stopping that medication uh, with the therapists or with the psychiatrist's approval. Um, and then I got on this on the current medication. I've been on that one for ooh, since 2010. So almost about eight years and uh, been kind of stable, I guess, since then. So you it sounds like you definitely attribute your suicidal ideation to the particular med you were on. That that particular ins version of the suicidal ideation through high school and shortly after high school, there was lots of suicidal ideation. Uh, but again, because of the codependency and the fear that um, of the pain that I'd be causing on others, right. I never went through it. Yeah. And so when you originally went to the doctor for memory and such. Um, were you in your head, were you thinking it was a mental illness at the time? No, it, it just kind of, I, I, I bought into the idea that, yeah, you know, maybe a, a psychiatrist would help with the attention issues if that's what it is. Right. And it just kind of snowballed. And I think it was the second session with the therapist in order to get, uh, help with the the attention issues that I just burst into tears just talking about my brother in kind of general terms and realized, nope, some, something, something's bigger and beyond the attention. And did you eventually get an official diagnosis from the therapist? Uh, yeah, eventually. So I have depression, ADD, uh, anxiety, and probably PTSD. Uh, just based on a few of the incidents that happened right around that same, you know, walking through my dad's apartment sort of stuff. Uh, so yeah, that the, uh, official diagnosis is depression with anxiety. Right. And yeah. how soon after you started seeing a therapist, did they say, you know, this isn't memory, it's not just ADD, but we're looking at depression. Uh, probably within about a month or so, uh, they had kind of pieced together between the two of them that, yeah, uh, that there's quite a bit more to unpack. Uh, and then from there, I actually lost insurance about two or three months after I started kind of plateauing or at least getting stable. And it wasn't until I think two or three years ago that I kind of kicked back in to the, to the therapy and it was actually because a friend of mine who I thought had her stuff together and was really stable said, oh, well, my therapist just just said that we that I'm, I'm well enough where they can't help me anymore and that, you know, their relationship was coming to a close. And I thought, wow, if she if I see her as being that stable, then my so-called, you know, being good enough doesn't have to be good enough and right. kind of went back a couple of years ago. Oh, that's a cool story. I mean, that is really somebody just being really open about their therapy that allowed you to feel better 
and, exactly. and realize that, hey, this is okay. And I think that's a lot of what we talk about with the stigma, right? The more yeah. open uh, people are about sharing things like that and not having shame around it, the more others feel comfortable about it. And that's a perfect example. Yeah. I, I hate to hear the stories of the insurance, you know, and I get that at the school all the time. Students and their fa- and their parents even who aren't on medication because the, the insurance won't cover it and so forth. Yep. Um, so how did that land with you just out of curiosity when after a month of therapy and thinking you're going through some ADD and that's impacting your memory when they came back and said, you know what, this is really depression and we're going to look at some depression meds. I struggled with it for a little while just because, you know, growing up in a family of, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstrap sort of thing. Uh, it, it, it took some convincing, uh, but I have to say that within a f- probably, yeah, about a month and a half into the, to the therapy, uh, it became real clear and I had started to get just well enough to start having opinions, start having, you know, my own thoughts, uh, and, you know, things bubbled up with my, my parents again. And I actually, uh, it was in the middle of one of, uh, towards the end of the, the first set of therapy that I actually cut ties with both my parents and, uh, went back to therapy the next week and explained what happened. And she kind of got bug eyed and was like, wow, you've, you've already done that. But, uh, probably until, till very recently, probably the last year or so I've, I've struggled with the guilt of that just because, uh, you know, I am a family man, mm-hmm. uh, and, but to have to feel the need to to separate yourself from from folks who are that uh, that negative and that kind of poisonous, really. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. That must have been incredibly challenging to cut ties. And at the same time, they clearly were not in a healthy place to be good role models for you and good support, a good support system for you. It's true. And probably, and this kind of shows sort of the relationship that was there, uh, for about, well, for a couple of months after I cut ties, uh, my mother would call and just leave these horrible messages of, you need to call me, you need to talk to me. You can't do this to me. I'm your mother. Uh, and I've gone back to visit my brother and his family and my grandmother, who is her, my mother's mother, uh, and had several incidents, even at my father's funeral, uh, died of heart issues, uh, about four years ago. And she kind of turned even the, his funeral into basically a, uh, a show for her. Uh, so it's been, it's been rough, but every time I go back East to visit family, it gets a little bit easier because now I'm, I'm far enough removed from everything to kind of see things a bit clearer. So every time I go back, it's just a, it's like, wow, I was so bad before that I would just, and even now, I think the last time was a year ago in May that uh, I went back there and my mom came into my grandma's house and just started crying and said, why don't you love me? Why won't you talk to me? And I froze. So even as, as good as I am now, I, I, I can't even like my whole body shuts down when, when she enters the room. 
Wow. Um, well, I'm glad you're in a place that you can also kind of take a step back and realize kind of the chaos, it sounds like, that she brings into your life. And hopefully, I don't know, is she ever, has she sought out help? Uh, it's my understanding she had for a while. Uh, it's, it's best I understand that after I cut ties, things got pretty ugly uh, um, with some drinking issues. Uh, and at that point, she had sought help for depression. Uh, whether or not that stuck uh, is beyond me. Because mm-hmm. with, with trying to separate, that meant me not being able to ask questions, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of pieces that I want to touch on that um, you shared with me before our interview. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned losing your identity that you had of living with depression. So it was, and it makes sense now. I mean, you had lived so long with depression, but it sounds like that became your identity and it was almost a, a real challenge to start recovery, feeling different and to kind of lose that identity. Can you share more about that with us? Yeah. So for the longest time, you know, I, I would literally not feel much of anything. And when I did, it was anxiety. It was fear. It was, you know, cutting to kind of center myself. But then I, so I would watch like the worst, goriest horror movies just to feel anything at all. And even at my current job, when I first started, I was known as the little black rain cloud and known for, you know, what, not wanting to talk to people, not wanting to be touched, not wanting to really go out after work or anything like that. And since the last couple of years of pretty um, intense EMDR therapy that, you know, becoming comfortable with touch, I'm actually a hugger now, uh, being uh, I'm actually not able to watch a lot of the horror movies that I used to love just because they're too intense. So actually having much more kind of normal or at least uh, uh, more healthy responses to things. So it's been this weird sort of, okay, who am I now, now that I, I, I don't fit into the, the kind of hateful, unwanting to talk to people sort of person that I was and trying to figure out who I am now without that as, as kind of the primary piece of me. That is really, that's cool. I think, um, it makes me think of a book I read, um, and it was written ages ago called psycho cybernetics, um, Mm. which some people thought of kind of as a self-help guru thing, but Really, it made a lot of sense, and a lot of it was about the the premise of the book. Really, was that you start to create your own identity, believe in who you are and who you think people think you are, and therefore you start acting that way. So, in your mind, if you're the depressed guy, you're gonna lay down on the couch and knock it off the couch because that's the expectation you believe everybody has on you. And you start Absolutely. behaving in that way. And and the premise of the book, it really says you can change your identity. You can buy, you know, some really positive things like positive self-talk, like mm-hmm. um, 
I'm spacing on the word, uh, not visioning, but, you know, like imagining things like, um, you know, like athletes do when they, before a game, you know, you prepare and uh, I'm spacing on the word, but, you know, (laughs) imagining that you're in a good place, that you are, um, going to do well at your work and putting just a lot of these thoughts and visions into, into motion that you can really change your identity. And I hear you saying that's exactly what happened. And you really recognize that you've lost that identity and it's a big change. It is. And I've, I've kind of taken on cause the anxiety is still there. It's not as bad. Uh, it still kicks up pretty frequently though. And I've kind of gone by this mantra of not fake it till you make it, but fake it till you become it. So kind of essentially pushing through a lot of the anxiety just to, cause yeah, you, you seem to find who that real person is underneath. If you, if you have the strength to just kind of trudge right through it and hope for the best. So yeah, it's, it's been this, it's been, it, it's been a, certainly a, a, a roller coaster. And I have to say that, uh, my better half and I are struggling through that part now. Uh, it's this weird, you know, everybody says that while you're in therapy or while you're getting help, it's, it's a journey, it's hard, it's hard work, but nobody ever mentioned to me that once you are in a better place, a lot of the hard work has just started because one, you're figuring out who you really are with the depression as, as the background noise rather than the forward noise. And, you know, now I get, whereas before, if, if, uh, I didn't, if something didn't go my way, I would just kind of shut down and be like, okay, yes, dear. Whereas now if, if something happens that I feel like it's against me or I feel like, someone's not being respectful of me, I get kind of angry because now I suddenly feel like I matter enough to, to, to not be treated that way. Right. And so I, I miss understand a lot of, of, of what folks say now, but in the other direction. So there's been a lot of, of relearning for both of us these last few months. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, you have come so far on this journey so n- now you are to maintain your positive mental health. You are still taking a medication. It sounds like two, yes, two medications, and mm-hmm. um, still doing therapy on a regular basis. Uh, it's it's getting less and less frequently uh, frequent. We're down to about once every three weeks because uh, it was probably about two years of fairly intense EMDR, so the eye movement desensitization or something like that yeah. reprocessing uh so it was about two years of of weekly uh sessions with that so i'm it's it's slowly working its way back uh and it's weird because uh like i said my better half and i are struggling with some stuff but outside of that i'm actually in a very good place which is weird for me to say there there are times where i'll just be sitting in the car driving to work and find myself smiling and have no idea why and you know granted that doesn't stay for very long but it's just a weird feeling to be able to say that you know even with all this um all the issues at home i'm still in a healthy enough place where it's not just 
Whereas before it would have just collapsed me and I just wouldn't be able to function period. Right. right. Yeah. So have you had the same therapist all the way through? Well, uh, before I lost, uh, insurance, we were in Wisconsin and that was the first therapist. Uh, and then that ended back in 2010. And since I started up about two years ago or so, it's been the same therapist right along. When I moved here to New Mexico, even before I had insurance, I still needed the medication that I was on. And I refused to be one of those folks who went off the meds because I didn't have a lot of money, but I had enough, I think. Uh, so I found a psychiatrist who would at least maintain that medication because uh, I really, I, it, when I was in Wisconsin, I, I did some volunteer work for basically a halfway house for folks who were trying to come back from severe mental illnesses and kind of get back into the workforce. And I saw folks who went off their medications and things never went well for them. And so I, I have had a psychiatrist now since 2010. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago, I went to him and said, hey, I think I need a therapist because I have some extra stuff that I want to unpack. So yeah, those two folks have been um, with me pretty much all along. Yeah. Oh, that's great. The EMDR I have heard and may have mentioned on the show, um, I've heard some amazing things about particularly working through some PTSD with EMDR and some men I know who said, you know, it just changed the way they interact and engage with everybody in their life. It was so, so helpful for them. It, it really is. And I actually thought it was one of those hokey things because basically all you're doing is sitting there, to, you know, with a random trigger event and then watching his finger go back and forth a bunch of times until he stops and asks, okay, what were you thinking as your mind wander up, wandered off? And you do that for a full hour and you keep going further and further back until you find the reason for the trigger. And yeah, I mean, it's so helpful. And even on the hard days where we got so deep and, you know, got really, you know, where I would cry most of the hour, uh, you know, you'd get in the car and just feel like half of the weight was lifted off your chest. Yeah, that's amazing. So I've heard it be done um, the way you described it by like a finger moving and your eyes just following. And that's where the eye movement desensitization term came from i heard also these days sometimes it involves like tapping of your fingers and things yeah. so something to get another sense going and that it's supposed to hit like maybe i don't know the parts of the brain so well but maybe towards the brain stem in the back of the brain where some things are deeply rooted and really yeah. let you get to that part yeah um, but yeah oh that's cool that it's worked so well for you as well yeah, it, it has been really cool. And it, what's really cool about it is that it's not necessarily about fixing yourself. It's much more about retraining your body to have healthy responses to the same triggers. So granted, a lot of those same things still trigger me. Mother's Day is a huge trigger for me. Uh, Christmas and Thanksgiving are huge triggers for me. So they still trigger me but they are much more muted and I'm able to recognize it and kind of come back from it. So it's been, it, yeah, this last uh, Christmas was just amazing just because those triggers were hard, hardly there at all. Ah, that's great to hear. Yeah. 
So I hear you saying some medication, the therapy that you're still doing, um, talk therapy, and um, and then I know you mentioned running earlier too. So exercise, yeah. any other pieces that that in your life that you or your tool belt that you use to um, stay on a good path with your mental health? Uh, well, my my better half and I have been together long enough where we see each other's. Um, when we're getting, uh, when, well, when I'm going off the deep end and I start getting snarky, she'll actually kind of say, okay, you've got two more of those comments before we're kind of, uh, done chatting for the day. Uh, <laughs> so she kind of puts me in my place yeah, for, keeps you know, you in check. exactly. Uh, outside of that, I do a lot of, uh, performance poetry, slam poetry, which itself is anxiety ridden because you're actually up in front of an audience. Um, but since I started actually doing poems about my depression, about the bullying, about some of the family issues, I've had folks come up to me afterwards and just say, thanks for making me feel a little less alone. And after that first time of somebody saying that, I was like, wow, if somebody had come up to me when I was 15 or 20 and said, hey, you are not alone, I would be in a, even a much better place than I am right now. Yeah. It would have been better a lot earlier. So I've kind of taken that uh, performance poetry stuff to kind of be the other way of kind of making sure that at least my struggle is kind of can be useful for others, I right, guess. Right, right. Yeah. So tell us more about that. I wanted to get into that because I know that's a big part of your life, um, the writing and the poetry. So poetry slam, um, do you yeah. do other types of poetry and how often are you doing it? I, I'm, I do quite a bit of, you know, traditional poetry, the stuff that you'd read in books, the stuff that most folks aren't that think of poetry and think, oh, that's not for me, which is why I like Poetry Slam. It's basically poetry competitions. Uh, so it tends to be much more emotional, much more easy to understand. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I've probably it, it was actually when I was at one of those Poetry Slam events that I kept wor worrying that, you know, I've started to unpack a lot of this really deep stuff that I hadn't really thought about, about the bullying, about about some of the stuff that happened to me in the family and getting a little worried that, you know, maybe I'm poking at a, at a badger that I probably shouldn't be poking at. And it was that same night that my other friend said, hey, you know, my therapist, you know, said he's kind of done because I'm in a good place. I was like, yeah, maybe I, I need to, since I'm already unpacking this stuff, to kind of keep myself from doing that in an unhealthy way. It kind of went hand in hand, uh, the poetry slam stuff, and then the, the therapy stuff started to kick in right around then. Uh, so yeah, so I've, I've kind of embraced the poetry and a lot of my other fiction writing and started my own poetry podcast, most be, mostly because I like having poets talk to me and uh, uh, speak poetry to me. Uh, and it's, it's much more about uh, kind of helping folks feel comfortable with poetry. There are a lot of poetry shows out there that are you know, really hard to reach. And I don't understand them because I'm not trained in, you know, creative writing. I don't have an MFA or anything. Uh, but I still feel like in a way, 
you know, poetry kind of helped me get better by kind of letting me go down that path and having other people come up to me afterward and just say, me too. And, you know, having moments where we're both just crying and hugging each other. And yeah, I mean, everybody should, should have that sort of moment. Yeah. It seems like a great, um, kind of way to get a release, right? Some yeah, of your feelings, yeah. some of your thoughts. Um, and I know your podcast is called pen and poet, right? Yes. Um, yes. and you do some blogging. So the advocacy work you do around mental health is really through your poetry. It seems like, is that, would you agree with that? Or is there other, are there other pieces to advocacy work you're doing? That's certainly the longer uh, term stuff that happens year round. I'm actually also the team captain for uh, one of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. They do a walk every year in September. Uh, this will be the third year that I'm the team captain. Last year, we raised enough money that we even ended up on on the T-shirts that they had. Wow, so, cool. Yeah. It, I mean, it all started because I wanted to raise some money and just be – a team, even if it was just me. Right. And this last year, I think there were 12 of us from work where I work. And it's been really cool to, to see so many people come up to me and just say, thanks for doing this when all I'm doing is sitting there, give me money. And, right. and folks are sharing their stories and I'm sharing mine. And it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty intense, but it's, it's amazing to finally feel both comfortable enough to talk about it as well as feel not alone right really right if people want to uh check out your pen and poet podcast how do they get there well right now i don't have a website but it's still uh on apple podcasts and anywhere they get podcasts uh pen and poet or my name uh and you should be able to find me i've probably got only about two months worth of episodes so far uh, but yeah, anywhere, I think my first episode was with the in erotic poet. So even if you don't dig poetry a whole lot, she, Ana Martinez is a lot of fun. I have so, to say yeah. that one, that one caught my eye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that one did catch my eye. So, um, and don't you have a website too though? Yeah. My own website, okay. rainymullen.com. Uh, so, so when people ask you how they can see yeah. your stuff, uh, just a little hint here. <laughs> yeah. You might want to say rainymullen.com. Uh, and people should know Rainy is spelled R-E-N-E, right? Yeah, so the website is Rainy, R-E-N-E, Mullen, M-U-L-L-E-N.com. And you've got your blog there and a link for your podcast, yeah. right? And, and a, um, a list of all the places where my stuff is published if they want to dig that stuff up too. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Any uh, so you did mention one of your guests. Was that uh, a favorite <laughs> favorite episode of yours? Uh, I I love Anna. Uh, I'm not big into erotic poetry, but a lot of folks uh, when I say, "Oh, I have a poetry podcast," they're like, "Ugh, poetry." So I push them towards that episode. But most <laughs> of the episodes uh, have so far been mostly performance poets, so it's easy easy to understand stuff. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So uh, I like your um, strategy there. Make sure the very first <laughs> podcast is with the erotic poet. <laughs> it's true. All right. All right. That's good thinking. That is smart, uh, <laughs> smart marketing. Um, do you, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot too much mm. here, but you happen to have a, a poem or even a slam that you could give us? Maybe Ooh, run I'm... something with mental health? Oh, why did I know you were going to do this? All right. 
Uh, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, here's one. It's kind of based off of the idea of of a of a soldier coming home. I I've never um, served in the armed forces, but uh, uh, that's kind of the the focus for this one. So let's see. I said goodbye to an old friend today. We never really talked much, he and I, but as brothers in arms, it's more about the unspoken kinship, you know? Now, I met my brother in arms when the paternal snake, the figurehead, tried to bite off his own head. His zombified body walking, slithering, but in actuality, it was society's vilification and the maternal snake's narcissistic dependency that was our war. The infected hole in my chest from the shrapnel of the figurehead falling festered and grew leaving in its wake a hole in my heart the size of the one that finally took my father's life. And my buddy, he helped me fill that void with drugs and booze. (laughs) I I remember this one time getting so high and drinking screwdrivers. It was after first period of freshman year in high school. Those were good times. Alone, he stood by my side. In the company of others, you couldn't even tell us apart. That's how close we were. It's probably also why it was my brother-in-arms who's who saw the broken shell of a man inside a boy's body that I had become. He took hold of my cheeks so tenderly, stared me down, and tore that smile straight off my face. Everyone started asking why I stopped talking, why I never smiled or showed emotion. Even my family got in on that action. Everybody got in on that action. Everybody except him. Never him. We got through a lot together, he and I, and we never once dwelled on that this could be our last battle because shit, man, we were just kids, just kids. That's why I hate to admit it, but recently I started to forget about him, about the war, about the horrors, about the images I had seen in childhood, but they never really go away, do they? Not really. The scars, they're still there. It's just a little easier to look myself in the mirror before being pickled in alcohol. Not all battle scars are visible. I used to wear a frown as a crutch, as a shield, as my protection. Now, I wear these angry man jowls as my purple heart. I'm not even all that sad or lonely. Truth be told, looking back now, that motherfucker had a bullet chambered pointed at me the whole time. I rem- This whole time. Twenty years I spent kissing the barrel of a gun, wondering, hoping, praying for the screaming to stop, for the pain to cease, for us both to be taken out of our misery, for that final battle to come, and oh, the sweet, sweet relief. But now, now I sit alone. The screaming has stopped. Now I sit alone and I do the one thing I thought the war had taken from me years before. Now I sit alone. Now I sit alone and I smile. Thank you. Wow. That was cool. Thank you. Um, there's a lot there. <laughs> wow. How long does it take you to create a poem like that? Ah, uh, that one actually came pretty, pretty fast. Uh, the poetry slam competitions, they're three minutes or less. Okay. So they do tend to be long uh, and you do have to memorize them largely. Right. So to actually build one, I actually have a huge whiteboard in our living room that I end up kind of piecing things together. Uh, so, yeah, I think usually it takes about a month for things to kind of fully come together. Yeah. What, yeah. An, what an art. I think it's yeah. amazing. I'd love to go to some poetry slams. Oh, you really should. 
Um, so thank you for sharing that with you. I know I'm kind of put you on the spot, so I really appreciate it. <laughs> no, um, thank you. Hey, any, uh, kind of final words of advice that you would give to any listeners who are, you know, in a rough spot right now? I think we kind of covered it, but I want to say that nobody tells you it, but it's just as hard once you have crossed into the kind of the better place, but that as there are times where I think, uh, maybe it'd be good to just kind of go back into the cave and, and pretend I don't know any of this, but it really isn't, it, it's worth all the work and hard work and all the crying and all the, all the, the kind of pain that comes with it to, to be this stable, I guess. Yeah. 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 Work, effort, time, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Well, uh, Rainey, I want to thank you very much. Uh, it was interesting talking to you. Very interesting. You're doing some great work. I'm glad to hear how healthy you've become. And uh, I will be listening in on your podcast for sure. Excellent. And thank you, Al. You're doing some awesome work with this. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, make sure you stay healthy. I will. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. <laughs>